Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Well, church, you know we're really trying to get people connected in these strange times, and so are you part of a hub, a life group, a triad? Really want you moving those directions. Uh, it's exciting. We've got three new hubs that have started, and uh, some are meeting outside, and so there, there's hope. There is hope uh, on these beautiful spring days. Um, and also along those lines, uh, we have an online directory of our church family that is uh, up and ready to go. So if you uh, allowed your name to be a part of that, you can check it out and find other people and know how to connect and send a note. Or you can figure out from Pearl, uh, pearl at kgfchurch.com, how to get into that. So we're excited about all that. Kids, 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 I have an exciting job for you today. How many of you like playing cards or trading cards, like hockey cards or baseball cards? Look at that one right there. Look at that one. Wayne Gretzky. This was an awesome card of mine when I was a kid. Now I've passed this on to one of my kids. But uh, do you think you could make your own uh, player card of yourself and make it look like you're on Jesus' team, that you have been traded onto Jesus' team? Do you think you can do that? I bet somebody you know might have some of these laying around somewhere and you could use it. So let's see what you can come up with and send us some pictures Parents, get, get those kids to send us some pictures of the cards that you create of being on Jesus' team. Can we do that? Uh, as always, we're heading toward a discussion starter question. This will be today's, what are you finding your worth or value in that is actually rubbish? And what is Jesus' invitation to you today? That's where we're headed. Take a look at this picture. That's me. Somewhere in that photo, can you find me? Look carefully, because I am the handsome one. Uh-huh. That's me with the A on the sweater. Way back in the day, part of a Bantam hockey championship team. Way back when pictures and all of life was only in black and white. Uh, one year, my town had two teams in my age category. Uh, and one game, those two teams played against each other. And I had five goals for one team. And I recall partway through the game being traded to the other team. And I was sitting on the bench and they made me take off my green sweater and put on my white sweat, a white sweater. And then I scored five goals for the other team. And I have no idea who had won, but I became known in town as that kid who could play hockey. I remember going with my dad to the hardware store and having an older guy, well, he was old to me back then, say, aren't you that waggler kid who scored those 10 goals? I remember this. In a small town, you can get a good reputation or a bad reputation pretty quickly, and you can build your identity around it. I became pretty proud of my hockey identity in those days. Does it sound like I'm over it? 
Ah, hope so. Well, I, I got a little lazy in those years, and the year before this picture was taken, I was living off that reputation and thought I was all that in a block of cheese. And when tryouts came one year, barely, I, I barely made the all-star team. And I remember growing crazy jealous of a guy who had surpassed me. He was a much better player than I was. He was now the star. And in a practice one time, I slashed him. Just slashed him across the back of the legs because of my frustration. I was sent to the bench to cool down. My identity was challenged, and what I thought I could boast about was useless, and I needed to grow up. And a, a good coach helped me through. I became a better player, a better teammate, and happily part of that championship team that made the newspaper, a team that went on to win five championships in a row as we aged through together as a group of young guys. What do you put your confidence in? When you look in the mirror and at your story, what makes you say, now that's what makes me me? Maybe take out a piece of paper right now or start making some mental notes. Make a list of the things that you put confidence in. Where do you place your identity? Start to think some of those things through. What do you put your confidence in? Degrees, certificates, cars or houses, having all the right gadgets and wearing all the right brands, job or title, that you buck the system and don't fit the mold? Do you boast that you're woke and socially conscious and not like those ignorant types? Do you boast that you see through all the craziness going on these days and have discovered what's really going on behind the scenes? You know, it's possible to put your identity in your trauma or wound. Did you know that? You can place your confidence in your victim mentality. Everyone is against me. My wound is so deep. My trauma is so great. I've actually found that one particularly destructive to my own soul, to be honest. I've learned how to milk that one. For a while, I was an only child whose dad had a stroke, leaving my family and me needy and to be pitied. And it felt good sometimes to wallow in that identity. People will endure outbursts and even sin when you're the pitied victim. They'll give you things and give you extra grace, which was very kind but it can also produce a confidence in your woundedness. Ugh, yuck, yuck. It's easy to do this, to be like a, a pig wallowing in the mud of life. You can have great confidence in, a, in things that people will pat you on the back for, even things that are ultimately destructive and soul-wrecking. Social media can help with this, actually. You can say all the right things and you get likes, and thumbs up and icons, and it can go to your head, and it become, can become actually what drives you. You can have great confidence in an identity that is a sham, a parroting of what we think is trending. For some of us, it becomes about needing to show people that we really please God. And breaking free from that one as well has been a challenge for me because of the legalistic way that I was raised. But all these things, is this really the joyful way to live? 
Is this a life worth emulating? Is this really what we want to pass on to others? Is this life to the full? Is this abundant life? What if all this boasting and self-confidence and posturing is actually rubbish or, uh uh-huh, poop? We kind of know way down in our knower that this is scat on the road of life, don't we? We have a sense it's kind of shallow, that it's a response to what others expect or misreading even of what God expects or what feeds my ego or helps me fit in or keeps my victim mentality alive. And what happens, friends, what happens if we're a community of people doing this posturing and boasting? What will we start to demand of others? What shows up in us and pours out of us when life and community challenges or exposes the facade that we've built and depend on? Do we slash the one who threatens us? Have you ever thought of like trading that for a new way of life to be truly alive? These are, these are crucial questions for what it means for how to live and for what it means to be the church. Let's walk through what Paul is saying next in his letter to the Philippian Christians. Grab your scriptures if you have them and follow along. We come today to a very honest, self-exposing and confession of Paul's own life in our journey through Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. From now on, says Paul, rejoice in the Lord. The Christian life is life turned joyful. If your life as a believer is not marked by joy, not not a false happiness, There's enough of that going on. That's not what I'm talking about. But joy, a deep, settled peace and gladness. Then pay attention. If your life's not marked by joy, pay attention. Paul's not posturing. Remember, he's writing this from prison about joy. Rejoice in the Lord. If joy is absent, then we must ask if we are living in the Lord, in the life of the humble life of Jesus who gave himself for us and is exalted, everything else will eventually rob you of joy. Paul has no problem, he says. It's, it's, it's no trouble for me to keep, you remi- keep reminding you of these things, keeping reminding them of joy. And he already had done it back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The joy because of Christ and being in the body of Christ You know, don't you, that most of what we do as pastors is remind you of the main thing. Live life in the Lord. Know Jesus. Make him known. That's not a broken record. It's a safeguard for your soul. Life lived in the Lord produces joy. Everything else that you have put your hope in should be traded. This is how Paul begins this section. Let's move on to verses two and three. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers. 
those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Just stop there. You know, in the ancient world, dogs were despised scavengers. They weren't often like your domesticated, friendly uh, tail wagger in your house. They were scavengers roaming the streets. They were wild. They looked out only for themselves. Paul is comparing teachers, religious teachers, who are demanding Christians find their identity in circumcision or some legalistic work. He's calling them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. This is, by the way, where we are today, not the PG section of Paul's letter. He's saying any who would claim that true life and joy comes through some form of self-confidence, legalistic earning, or virtue signaling are out to destroy you and are often led by a joyless, wounded life. They're motivated by selfish gain or eventually overtaken by it. These dogs, he says, these dogs, they want you to operate by the values of the world by posturing and earning, by proving yourself. But that is the opposite of the mindset of the Christian life, and it is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. The life of the disciple is rooted in what Christ has earned on our behalf. We have died to self, repented of sin, the life of pride, accepted that in Jesus Christ on the cross, God was putting an end to that way of being, we have traded up. We serve God by the Spirit, the breath of God that has made us alive when we are dead. We boast in Christ Jesus. He loved someone even like me, even like that pompous kid slashing another guy. I am valuable and so precious and loved in the sight of God despite the fact that I am a rebel against my heavenly father so often, so prone to seek my own glory rather than his. A Christian knows that their joy is precisely in the fact that they couldn't trust themselves, can't trust their own confidence. Our joy is that my identity is in the Lord, not myself. Listen, who are the dogs that you're listening to? Any voice that demands you must prove yourself and show that you are really something is evil in the sight of your Heavenly Father. And this kind of voice can be your own voice or a religious voice or an irreligious voice that is so politically or socially up your alley that you can't believe it's a dog's howl. But see, the test is joy. Because the dog's howl calls you to work harder, run faster, prove you earn it, repost their perspective to fit in. A weight and a burden and a moving target and it is joy-sucking and fear-stirring rubbish. The voice of God calls you to a deeper surrender into the arms of your heavenly Father, humility with others, that looks like Jesus and a joyful serving of God's purposes, a life of worship that is of the Holy Spirit. The Christian has traded up. 
Now look how Paul continues, because this is actually his own story. He says, verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, the confidence of the, of, of the putting confidence in the flesh. Uh, second part of verse 4, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. See, here's where Paul's getting vulnerable. He's the guy who listened to the dogs. In fact, he was a dog himself. He could put all his confidence in earning and proving. He could outdo anyone in the me monster competition. By the way, if you want a great laugh, Google me monster, Brian Regan. And it's a great laugh because he jokes that he wishes he could be one of the few people who have walked on the moon. Because then when he meets someone boasting and trying to prove themselves, he could trump it all by saying, I walked on the moon. Paul was this guy. He was once everything the self-righteous dogs were barking. He was circumcised precisely when a Jewish boy was to be clipped on the eighth day. He was after birth. He was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe from the first king, king of Israel came from. He was a Hebrew through and through. He was a Pharisee, the most religious, self-righteous group of Jews there was who claimed they had Moses on their side. He was so zealous, bubbling with the enthusiasm of all of this that he persecuted the church. If you held up the law beside him, he was faultless. Does this describe the life you're chasing? Is that what your religious upbringing demanded of you? Or perhaps, perhaps, you've swung it all the way to the other end. You're chasing the faultless life that the agnostic or the secular humanist thinking demands. All the right posturing, all the right likes and symbols. The model 21st century citizen of a bloated, proud world. What are you zealous and bubbling over for? What is the gain that you are trusting? What do you think is earning you the profit in the eyes of others or even in the eyes of God? What have you decided is of most importance? What or who gets the final vote in your life? Is your life deeply joyful or are you frustrated, a frustrated, angry, barking dog? Pay attention. Because you ask those questions, honestly ask those questions of yourself, it starts to reveal. See, Paul was the model, the model citizen of the Jewish people. He had zeal and confidence to blow everybody out of the water. But, look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, it's on the screen. Just pause where you are. Let's read it together. Are you ready? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Did you catch what he's saying? All these things that I thought I could put my identity in, I now consider loss. That word loss, zemion in Greek, means a bad deal, 
It's a term for an unsuccessful business transaction which resulted in fine or penalty, damage or loss, bankruptcy, whatever. Paul is saying, I put all my confidence in the wrong business plan and it's become a bad deal. Have you ever done that? Ever invested in something that blew up in your face? I had a friend who actually years ago had a, had a framed certificate from Briex on his wall as a reminder of some of these things. If some of you remember Briex, it was a gold mining uh, organized, uh, company that went, the stocks went through the roof and then was proved to be nothing but a sham. Or maybe you sunk it all in GameStop a few weeks ago trusted that wrong advisor and now you're they're living in Hawaii and you're going to work till you're 75 just to catch up dogs all of it Paul is vulnerably adamant everything outside of Christ for identity and knowing how to live is a bad deal he goes further look at verse 8 what is more I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. All things have become lost because of the exceeding worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, says Paul. Jesus is not an idea to Paul. He shouldn't be an idea to you or I. We can know him as my Lord. You see the intimate, close, knowing language like a friend that Paul is using. The king of the universe who humbled himself for the world that God loves and who is exalted and before whom every knee will one day bow is my Lord when he returns in glory and all things are put to rights, you'll be able to say, I know him. And it will actually be true. And he will say, and I know you too. Hey friend, I am his and he is mine. This is my identity. And for this sake, says Paul, I will lose all things. And for Jesus' sake, I will count them as, as a loss, forfeiture, I, I, and forfeiture. Flick loss, I willingly lose the right to self-governing this thing anymore. I count, I esteem these things as garbage, as rubbish. Now, actually, the real word, the Greek word here that you see um, for garbage in verse 8 is actually uh, even stronger than our English translations of the Bible are willing to put it in because some of us would get offended for some reason. It means dog dung. It's the stuff that the dogs that we should be look out for in verse 2 are doing, that are producing. The refuse, the good-for-nothing muck, the, the, worst, the, the, the worthless and detestable stuff. I have traded up, says Paul. I've traded up from that old way of life 
I have utterly swept away the scat and that old business mode aside for what I've gained and understand to be of greatest worth, knowing Jesus Christ. Did you hear about Kyle McDonald from Montreal? who between July 2005 and July 2006 traded a red paper clip for a house in Kipling, Saskatchewan. It took 13 trades. A whole bunch of things were involved, even doorknobs and generators and snow globes and all kinds of weird stuff. It led the town of Kipling, Saskatchewan, by the way, to put up their st a structure of a red paper clip in Bell Park there. What's the best trade that you've ever made? Something you've traded up. There is no better trade than a life based in self-righteousness, anxious posturing, or seeking to prove yourself, or living in your victim mentality, trading all that for the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, the living and exalted Lord. We trade our own righteousness, which was a sham to begin with, for the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. We have traded up and all we did was nothing. We awoke to the reality that God did it. It's all God. And our response is faith, leaning all our weight on him. This is the source of true joy. This is why we want to know him more and more. Paul says, I want to know Christ. It's why we want to know the power of resurrection. What life can become when the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. What might my life become? This is why Christians are ready, as Paul says, to fellowship in his sufferings. And this is now the third time, third time in Paul's letter where he's using that word koinonia, fellowship, partnership. It's the third place. It is for the partnering, the fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings. We actually want to partner in Christ's pathema. That's the Greek word. The capacity and the privilege, privilege to feel strong, deep emotion. The freedom of a good cry or going through the hard thing for the right reason. Good suffering. That's Christ's suffering. We want to become like him in his suffering sharing the same thing he shared. And that draws us all the way back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Let this same mindset be in you. It was in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. Do you see it? Listen, you know when you watch, hear, or read about that overcoming character or personality who inspires you, and you, you say, I wish I could be like that you know that the only way to become like that is to trade up by literally counting everything else loss and embracing a life that suffers to become like that. The greatest worth, the greatest worth for the Christian is anything that makes me trust me less and know Jesus more. Anything that exposes the false gain or the dog barking I've been paying attention to and that makes me trade up to know Jesus and become more like him. There is nothing of greater worth. Which is why suffering is not to be run from. For it teaches us what is of ultimate worth and ultimate joy. 
Do we fear suffering in our society because it might expose how shallow and manicured our lives have become? But as Christians, we want to know Jesus, my Lord, and live his resurrected life that has hope for today and eternity. So we discover the joy that enters often through suffering, through his loving passion, the depth of his pain for this broken and posturing world. Otherwise, we just know about God. We don't become like him. What do you most want to know right now? Do you want to know you're right and all your opinions and arguments are on the right side of history or get all the accolades? Or do you want to know Christ? Do you want to know joy? Do you want to know resurrection? Is it time to trade up? The Christian business plan is counterintuitive. Is it time to cast aside everything you once thought was profit and exchange it for the exceedingly greater joy of knowing Christ? It is in partnership, fellowship, koinonia, in the suffering of Christ that we discover the resurrected life. And this is what the Christian is seeking to attain. That's the destination we seek, the inheritance we desire full possession of, a life thoroughly removed from the realm of the dead life. We want to rise up and completely leave behind the useless rubbish for what is life that is both full now and in eternity. To be the church in the world and for the world depends on a community of saints who trade up, who lean fully on Christ's full sufficiency, not religious effort or religious acts or virtue signaling, but who consciously and literally become God's business partners. Are you joyfully spurring others on toward this? Are you? Are you ready to trade up? I just want to invite you to hold your hands out like this. Just kids, you can do this too. Just everybody hold your hands out. Just maybe close your eyes if that helps or look out the window. Can you be as honest with your own soul as Paul was with his? I mean, he openly, for generations to come, vulnerably said, I... I was just like putting confidence in the wrong thing. What is it that you've been putting your confidence in? That's where your identity is. Jesus, thank you that you came to make the great exchange possible. That this sham and facade, this Maybe it's a place of woundedness in our lives. Maybe it's a place where we've actually held on and are bracing sin. Lord, you came to exchange that, to say, you give me that because <laughs> it's just a lie anyway. You give that to me, I'll carry it. And you have my righteousness. You have my identity. You have my life. 
Let's trade. So maybe with your hands open, whatever it is that you've held as your identity, could, could you actually open your hands enough with that and just really hand that over to him? And could you receive the resurrection life he wants to give you? Jesus, lead us, we pray, in these tumultuous days where it's so hard to know how to live. Help us by the power of your spirit to trade up and live the resurrected life, to desire to know you better and better, to know the power of your resurrection, to share and fellowship in your suffering that we may attain a life that is full, that will never end. We need you, Lord. We trust you and we worship you with our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, friends. Here's our discussion starter question for today. And uh, we're gonna celebrate communion as well. And so you can either after we put the, the discussion question on, if you're celebrating communion in a hub or something today, you can just use the question and then eventually uh, join into communion with your own uh, hub of people if you're in a park or even virtually online as our hub will do. Um, or you can stick around after the questions on the screen for a few minutes and join in communion here that I will lead. Here's the question. We've got it up on the screen. What are you finding your worth in that is actually rubbish? What is Jesus' invitation to you today? That's the question, to put this into practice and action, that we would be transformed and trade up for new life. The Lord bless you this week, church. Well, church, the good news is that we really have traded up. We've traded this life that we once had and the confidence that we placed in it for the righteousness of Christ. And so as we celebrate the Lord's table together, we're really recognizing something incredible. The Lord's death until he comes again. The early church uh, and Jesus himself, of course, instituted and put this practice into place on the night before he was, on the night that he was betrayed. The early church passed this on, that the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he took a cup and he uh, used the fruit of the vine as the sign of his shed blood, which was about to be poured out for us. This is what actually has accomplished the trade up. And so if you've given your life to Christ, we welcome you at this table. Uh, can I encourage you as well? A, a huge part of what we call communion it's actually to make things right with others in the body of Christ. And so perhaps you're at odds with somebody. It might be somebody in your own household. It could be somebody you've said something to, or it could be in these polarizing days, it might be something where an opinion has driven you apart from somebody. Could you reach out? Could you connect with them and say, brother, sister, uh, forgive me. Jesus died for you and I, and we're contending for 
his wholeness, his body until he comes again and makes all things right. So as we follow along here, uh, there's going to be a part for me. It's going to come up full screen so that you can follow along. There's going to be a part for you so that you can see it well and you'll be able to, to read along. And then we'll eat together. I'll direct you when to do that. So get, get your bread, get your cup ready, share it amongst you all right now. Pass it out. And uh, let's begin. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Listen, the Lord who fed the thousands on the hillside, who fed the 12 in the upper room, listen, he stands at the door and knocks. If we hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and eat with us. Jesus invites all his disciples to feast at this table, all who are members of God's covenant family, living in obedience to God and with integrity toward their spiritual brothers and sisters, gather to celebrate their communion with Christ and each other. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, forgive our sins, our pride and self-sufficiency, our bitterness and division. Help us to examine ourselves and give us the grace to repent. We will leave the gifts of our worship at the altar until we have made right that which needs mending with you or in the church. And then, O oh Lord, your kindness and forgiveness will feed our very souls. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we bless you for the bread, for this sign of Jesus' body, for his life of compassion and his example of humble service. This loaf unites us in one body and strengthens us for ministry. Lord, remember your body and deliver us from evil. Let us eat together. And now pass that cup around. In the same way Jesus took the cup, he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we bless you for the cup, for this sign of Jesus' shed blood, for his death on the cross and his sacrifice for sin. This cup welcomes us into a covenant of forgiveness and promises us the riches of eternal life. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and we have been brought over from death into life. Let's drink together. And now let us read all together. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. 
We fellowship with one another uh, in these days virtually, but we are united in the spirit. And you can activate this communion by reaching out to somebody, connecting with somebody, uh, making a disciple-making move with another believer, and then living on mission this week. And so let us praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let us praise him, all creatures here below. Let us praise him above ye heavenly host. Let us praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.